This is about all of us. You are a valuable person. You make a commitment to this community. And the more you know and share with others, that's how we get this thing better. So all of us got to be teachers. All of us don't have to be licensed. All of us, we all got to be teachers. We got to teach whatever it is we know that is good for the country to whomever we have, an access, have access to. And that's how those problems will be resolved. And I also appreciate what Dr. Flood said. It's like, we can all be educators. We can all be teachers. And so maybe in some places, it's not the licensed teacher. Maybe it's some other kind of educator, right? We could just do so many different things. Welcome to Illogical by Truth. We have an amazing episode today. Um, and I want to jump right in because we have a lot to cover. Um, um, our state and our country rests on a history that used the unique role of public education to advance social justice and, met, and major legislation. Because of the national brand and influence of public education, most individuals assume that education K-12 is exclusively either federal or a state issue. People forget that education is local. The history of education is local. Our goal today is to share that unique history and to explore the local opportunities that exist today in reimagining public education. So today I have with me just amazing individuals have literally helped me as a young educator, as a, as a thinker, um, through my career, even outside of the classroom. They have become family and, and mentors to me. Um, we have Anne McCall. Anne McCall is an attorney um, uh, that's almost, uh, I think, an extended family to me. <laughs> <laughs> we have wrestled with issues of um, education, issues of uh, inequality, both at income, race. We have looked at statewide issues. We have looked at local, issue, local issues. We have even entertained um, amazing human beings across the nation on issues. Mm-hmm. Um, Anne has really trailblazed several initiatives. One was to uh, sort of create a solution to this mass exodus uh, to charter schools for public schools. And that uh, work is still continuing today. And Anne has uh, really thought not just outside the box. I think she creates the box <laughs> by which most people live in. And so I just thank you for mm. um, thank you for being, for being present, for allowing your mind to grapple with mm. issues that people don't even uh, know um, are significant at the moment. And so thank you. Uh, my, mm. my, my introduction to Anne was in the Constitutional Tales, mm. and uh, mm. she had me sit in the seat of legislators early on when they were um, debating for uh, the integration of, or uh, the creation of, uh, the public school system and the integration of of schools and as a legislative issue. And when you sit in that seat and you share those words, you're now put into the into the sort of historical place where um, certain views were different at the time, and you mm-hmm. start to understand the weight yeah. of living the life you live now. And so, uh, thank you for the opportunity to to experience Ann McCall. Uh, and then I have uh, Dr. Flood. Dr. Flood has, <laughs> he has allowed for me to uh, just sit in his living room <laughs> and just learn and grow. But what was most fascinating about Dr. Flood, years ago I was, I was a, a principal and he allowed for us to hold a, a breakfast that we filmed. 
And prior, le- leading up to that breakfast, he gave me um, several books about his life. And he gave me a chance to sort of dive into um, who he is as a human being outside of education. Most people see him as an educator, but if you read his story, um, education was blessed by the human being, not the inverse. And so I just appreciate Dr. Fuller being a trailblazer in so many ways. He has <laughs> trophies all over the place. <laughs> Um, but what's most fascinating to me is everybody that meets you, Dr. Flood, is as if you were their personal mentor. <laughs> and so I just thank you for um, giving so much to others and never expecting or asking for anything back in return. And I think that's at the essence of what public school should be. And so I just thank you for being the ultimate educator and allowing for me to live in your legacy here in the state. Uh, so welcome, Ann and Dr. Flood. That's a, that's probably the longest introduction I've ever. <laughs> <laughs> <We're taking it. laughs> but these two human beings are just—they're um, meaningful to me, and they—they they know it. I, I talk to them all the time. But I want to start with you, Dr. Flood. You are in the North Carolina Hall of Fame. You're in several other areas. So, what led you to the field of education? Why is public education important to you? I've always believed that. Each of us ought to try to make some contribution to the betterment of humankind. Mm -hmm. And as I grew up in a segregated society, the vehicle through which through that was only education. There had no other opportunity to do that. Mm -hmm. I could have been a preacher. I could have been a a lawyer. I could have been an educator. Mm -hmm. As a preacher, I would have had a congregation at one church. Mm -hmm. That's not enough for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, As a lawyer, I could have had whoever was in trouble. Mm -hmm. That's not enough for me either. So the only avenue through which you could reach all the public was education. Wow. Everybody goes to school. That's good. Uh, that hadn't always been the case, but when I grew up in the 30s and 40s, mm-hmm. everybody went to school, and that's the only place I know that everybody goes. Everybody mm-hmm. doesn't go to church. Mm-hmm. Everybody doesn't go to court. Everybody doesn't go to anything else except school. Mm-hmm. So it occurred to me if I were to make a difference, that would be the, through, the vehicle through which to do it. But, but, but Dr. Flay, you, you have amazing talents in so many areas. You're an athlete. Most people don't know you play baseball and, and basketball. <laughs> you, you, um, you were a math teacher. Um, to this day, we're looking for black male math teachers. To this day, as we stand right now. Um, there's so many areas in which you could have moved. Why, the school, like, like why did you say, okay, I'm going I'm to hone in here? So many areas in which, you know, you just your brilliance um, could have been just amazing. Why in that classroom? Your, your access to the utilization of any of those capabilities was education. Mm-hmm. I had no other avenue through which I could have done any of those mm-hmm. things. The basketball I played was in school. Wow. Uh, we played on the playground, but nobody was watching. <laughs> uh, everything I learned useful, ex- except for the family, of course, that was applicable to doing what I ultimately wanted to do, and that was trying to make a difference. Wow. I believe then, as I do now, that the price for living here is that you mm. you leave something here better than what you found. And I didn't know any other avenue, and I still don't, through which I personally, I know that others have other avenues through which they can. But knowing me as I've always known me, my strengths were in building leaders. Mm. I've never tried to build followers. I've mm. tried to build leaders. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And and where is they going to be a leaders except to catch them at the rudimentary Absolutely. stage Absolutely. where they have decided they already know all there is to know and and uh, and help them to understand what is possible because the great motivator is possibility. Mm-hmm. Help them to understand what is possible 
your journey being an example of, of what is possible for them because they knew that I grew up on Chowan River and except for education, I'd been a tugboat captain today. You know, I, and there's nothing wrong with that, but I hope I've made a greater contribution than, than pushing the Corinthian up down Chowan River for the rest of my life. That would be the thing my father would, was doing. And I honored him for doing it, did it really well. But he never said to me that you ought to be the next tugboat captain. Wow. He said to me, my job is to go down here to river and work. Your job is to go to school. Every day you see me do my job, I expect to see you doing yours. So there wasn't much of an option. I wish I could say I gathered by myself the value there. It was an option at my house. My house was full of people who knew that school is your job. <laughs> and so I've always liked fun. I decided if school's your job, why don't you learn to enjoy it? And uh, to this day, I enjoy school. Yeah. I've been to school some part every year of my life since I was five years old. Sometimes sneaked into a workshop that Ann was doing something. <laughs> but I've been somewhere that would enable me to learn. Why? Because I don't know what is yeah. applicable. I don't know what I, I, I'd rather need it. Yeah. I'd rather have it and not need it than to need it and not have it. So, so, so uh, and Ann knows not stealing. I use her stuff when I need to <laughs> because that's what educators do. They don't put this stuff in a barrel somewhere. <laughs> that's right. They, they want it to be where people can make use thereof. And that's why I'm always gratified when I see young people like yourself and Leo and others yeah. moving with the stuff that we've talked about. They're doing something with it. They're not just yeah. bonding it up and saving it yeah. for another time. They're using it right now. Yeah. And that is through the educational system. That's what educational system is not just in the classroom. That's right. Education is everywhere. You know, my, 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 my father, uh, he's no longer with us, but my father... Grew up in Southern Pines. He 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 was amazing mechanic. So when, when we wanted to go visit my father, we had to go under the car. <laughs> like you see legs sticking out. And this is at the time you can get like you know you know now ladies for twenty five cents. So we'd we'll see if he had any change that fell out of his pocket. We had to go visit him under the car. Yeah. And I remember when we would have time where he would share. And he was he was a very he was a manly man. So mm-hmm. most of our communal time my father was either watching wrestling this is WWF everyone this was <laughs> watching John Clive friend like it was it was those are moments in which you had a chance to intersect into his life and in those moments he always wanted us to do something that did not require just your hands mm-hmm. he would always push it he would always mm-hmm. push it and he wanted um in the military he took exams to try to advance his career he always failed those exams but he was a brilliant engineer. He, mm-hmm. he he retired as an engineer, but he only seen excellence as it as it was in your mind, as you as it was celebrated and awarded as your mm-hmm. mind elevating in formal education. Mm-hmm. So it meant the world to him. And he did not want us to mm-hmm. go down the avenue of engineering. Not that he hated, he loved his career, but he he always pushed for the inverse. And so my my graduate journey from my bachelor's to my PhD was his fight with cancer. So when I, when I got my bachelor's, he, it was announced to the family at my graduation. And then when I graduated my PhD, my son was one years old, and my father died that very next year. Um, and, and so the, my, my, my learning journey, his last thoughts of Terrence, was that he actually went and maximized whatever he can in his brain and, became, mm-hmm. and, and, and rested on education and as an educator. Absolutely. And for me, it was... It was that that um, that link between me and my father, 
that it became my drive to satisfy my father. It wasn't these sort of external things. It was this drive to to beat this cancer right. Right. to to finish that PhD program. Right. And so it, the education became um, a personal journey and personal, and it was a connector between me and my father. Yes. Um, so I would come in and check with him. But he will also, you know, he'll, he'll sit up. Yeah. You know, the cancer is eroding his body, but he'll sit up and he'll, and he'll ask me questions about it. He didn't want his journey to burden mine. And I didn't want my journey to burden mm-hmm. his. So that was sort of the connector between our two. But education was healing for our, for our relationship, for our family. I'm just talking about committed lives. And I want to shift over to you. You have literally committed your life to research of education, race, social change. Um, literally your entire life. What influenced you to engage in education? Why did education become sort of the the, the main spoke in that wheel? Yeah. So I, I would say it started um, when I was in law school. So before then, my interests in social justice were a little broader. You know, good government, political mm-hmm. reform, was involved in women's issues. Um, and when I was in law school, I really got to sit at the feet of some giants. And mm-hmm. so Dan Pollitt, Jack Boger were my professors in constitutional law and in poverty and school law. I uh, got to work with Lori Mesabov at the Institute wow. of Government. And, you know, it that's a little bit more of the head experience, I would say, of kind of realizing that public education, the way treat the society treats public education, is really one of the best indicators of what kind of society we are, mm. right? So when we look— at the Constitution and free speech and the rights of students, the rights of um, adults. I mean, we, we see it all in the public education environment. So that really sparked my imagination. Um, and then when I got the chance to do the kind of research into the archives, I think that was more the heart. That was learning the empathy and understanding for people who hadn't had the kind of experiences I had. You know, I went to well-resourced schools going up, and I knew that my parents would be able to afford for me to go to college. And so to then learn our history and know about people who had been denied any opportunity to education, people who had been denied an equal opportunity, people who had been denied the opportunity to learn in an environment that honored who they were and their culture— you know, yeah. that's a whole nother thing. And and so it's realizing the power that people have through the way we have set up government hmm. and its absolute necessity from the young person to the young person's family hmm. to this community <laughs> to the state and nation. I mean, it's just— People talk about it, and it's—you you can't say it as a hyperbole, just how important it is. And, and the two of you have just spoken so beautifully about your own experience, and that's, you know, yeah. we can go to this person and this person and sure. this person. So that's what, that's what captivated me about it. You know what's amazing, Anne, is uh, we're seeing trends in education now— um, almost like a zoom back into hyper-local. You're seeing school board meetings packed out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've listened to you, and I've snuck into your workshops as well, <laughs> and you have shared this picture a long time ago. 
Yeah. <laughs> you, have, you have literally, you were literally beating this drum <laughs> a long time ago. And uh, it's just amazing how you committed your life to the point where you can see the crumbs mm-hmm. that's leading to a larger picture. Mm-hmm. Most people are just experiencing it now. Yeah. But I remember when you were putting your A-team together to try to be prepared for this moment. Yeah. And so um, by now, you know, most people consider you the premier voice for, you know, gene teachers. And some people, mm-hmm. this is going to be the first time they ever hear that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they, and this is not just exclusive to, you know, to North Carolina. Yeah. But this is going to be sometimes they have to, the first time they've ever heard of Gene's teachers and Rosenwald schools, even mm-hmm. though most of, you know, um, this, the work of integration and black education rested on, you know, in the South, rested on the quality of the Rosenwald schools. This education history is saturated with levels of local activism, local engagement. Can you share what Gene teachers and the Rosenwald schools are in their relationship to local activism? Sure. So, you know, let's, let's paint a picture first of the Jim Crow South starting mm-hmm. in the early 1900s. Whenever I hear people talk about how hard it is now, <laughs> I just have to say, let, let's look back a little bit. Let's look back a little bit. Um, of course, women didn't have the right to vote. Black men had been denied their right to vote, had been essentially made ineffective in all of political life. I mean, there's just no way to talk about the horrors of Jim Crow and fully express all of what was going on, the lynchings, the inequities, um, the refusal of white society to allow blacks to flourish. And so it is in, you know, that context that we have schools for blacks that are in deplorable conditions Mm -hmm. um, that are being run by white school systems, right? And so genes, which um, genes teachers, and so People always want to know how to spell it, so I'm just going <laughs> to do a little spelling here. It's J-E-A-N-E-S. It's another uh, northern philanthropy project, just like the Rosenwald Schools, where Anna Jeans, a Quaker woman from Philadelphia, wanted to leave a family fortune to allow black educators into the South to make a difference. And What's pretty extraordinary about the approach is that she didn't want to give it, like, um, to Booker T. Washington and the Tuskegee or the Hampton Institute. She believed in educators, Mm -hmm. and she believed in educators being able to go into local communities and help them Mm -hmm. do what they saw as needed. I mean, it's the most extraordinary kind of local autonomy Go into Gates County, go into Durham County, go into Rutherford, go into Rowan, wherever in North Carolina uh, and along with the South. And these primarily female educators, all African-American, had this amazing opportunity to work with the community, Mm. to say, what is it we need to do? And what's within our values? And what expresses who we are as a culture and as a community? And what will uplift us and it will help us thrive? And so they often had an amazing amount of authority. They sort of started it as de facto superintendents of the schools for blacks mm. because the white superintendent was busy. Mm. And, you know, and they even said quite bluntly, 
I've got my hands full with the white schools. Wow. It would be great if you would do whatever you can. Wow. So they did the hiring. They figured out the wow. curriculum. They worked with the community. They did community organizing. Wow. And, you know, I, it's the individual teachers are praiseworthy. And I think it's really important to put it within the context of their culture, their communities, mm-hmm. the black communities. And what is also praiseworthy are the black women's organizations, mm-hmm. the women in the churches who were already fostering so, these yeah. values and ways of being in the community. And they nurtured these genes teachers, and the genes teachers were a part of those groups. And so it was all of a piece. It was so holistic in the way they saw public education mm-hmm. as a part of their communities. And so it's this really special time. And the Rosenwald schools go hand in hand with this because um, Rosenwald, again, named after a white northern philanthropist, the CEO of Sears Roebuck, essentially created a challenge and incentive and said, white school boards, um, if you will, I will give you some money to build a school Hmm. that is of a much better standard than the schools that you have right now for your black students. And it's it's a deal. Uh, The Black community will raise some funds to show their interest in the school, Mm -hmm. but you will then agree to pay the teachers reasonably, give them the Mm -hmm. same resources. And so it was this opportunity. Well, who's going to rally a community to take advantage of that? Mm -hmm. It's going to be the genes teachers. Mm -hmm. And so there's no coincidence that North Carolina, Mm -hmm. who had um, more genes teachers than any state other than Virginia, were out there rallying communities, doing the fundraising to build these Rosenwald schools. And North Carolina has more Rosenwald schools than any other state. Wow. It's one of those opportunities to see locally what was done. And we still can because the archives are there. Um, because it was an organized program, we've got reports, mm-hmm. you know, the Jeans teacher Carrie Jordan in Durham Here are all the things that she did. Annie Holland in Gates County, this is what she did. Um, You know, we can see, and it is, it's just as you're saying, Terrence, it's it's local. They are going into the communities, not deciding by themselves. The philanthropy isn't telling them what to do. They are working with the community to come together and decide what they need. And I wanna wanna just zoom in to a day in the life. Because most people, when they say go into community, that that's abstract, and they, they think of so many different things. But I remember you gave me a story where there was a, uh, uh, I think she was married, but she was coming to the South in a community she's never been in before, mm-hmm. meeting the pastor, asking for space, okay. yeah. teaching life skills, teaching how to yeah. sew, I think it was. You're talking about complete strangers. We're not talking about, uh, you know, like getting in your car and, you know, going to Google Maps. Right. Finding finding like a Starbucks. Right. (laughs) Like I'm trying to get people to understand the risk of like leaving and going into all for the sake of education. That's right. So you're (laughs) thinking about Annie Holland, Mm. who had been um, from Virginia. She was the first person in her family born outside of slavery. Um, she had become an educator. She was a teacher. She had been a principal of the fastest-growing school in her community. And 
Uh, she had worked with communities in Virginia creating buying clubs, mm. trying to help those communities find ways to come together and create power for themselves. Wow. So when she came into North Carolina, she, she already knew what she thought she needed to do. Mm. And it was true. It's exactly what you say. The first thing she did was meet with the churches, mm. and they agreed to help her. They agreed to fundraise for her so she could go to them and say, this is what we need at the school, mm. and they would help her with it. And she worked 12 months a year. Wow. Which, you know, we're still trying to figure out how to do that for <laughs> teachers, right? And she would get grants, sometimes from the U.S. government and agriculture, to come in and work in the students' homes, helping them uh, learn how to can, learn how to create summer gardens. But it was all of a piece because she would say, she wrote um, these wonderful letters and she said, you know, I'm not just helping with canning. I'm not just helping with gardens. I'm getting into the home and they are getting to understand the value of education and they are connecting. And so when, you know, when the fall starts, I know them. They believe in me and we're going to work together. Wow. And, you know, she goes on to, um, run the program for the state. She's the first wow. African-American in North Carolina to run the program with the Jeans program, along with other things. She was a, a supervisor of elementary schools, uh, the black schools for the, for the whole state. And, and, and so she was just an extraordinary woman. And she was of a kind, wow. right? Again, I, I, I want to wow. be careful to both praise Annie Holland yeah. and praise the black community yeah. that embraced her and said, yes, this is exactly what we should be doing, and That's we right. are right there with you, right. you know. It, it, right. it, it's, And I do think that that's important, given that there were counter-narratives at that mm-hmm. time of mm-hmm. saying that black communities didn't care about education. I mean, so not true. So not true. It's sad that uh, you hear a lot of those narratives now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It is sad that you... Um, run into many of those, especially in black-centric communities, and it's just not true. <laughs> it's just not. Yeah. It's, and so, you know, with that, um, Anne is really giving us sort of local characters. Dr. Flood, most people assume that state and federal actors desegregated schools alone. So we're, we're, we're fast-forwarding up to, <laughs> and then without local support or influence, it's just that legislation happened, and the next day— <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. Flood, I, I had the privilege of you know reading several books that you authored, uh, authored, and then and then you you were you were influenced by the Rosenwald schools and by local um, educators. In what ways can you remind our listeners of how your role in desegregating schools required local influence? If I were to describe what education was in my growing up, it was one hundred percent local. Mm-hmm. I was a grown man before I ever knew you had something called a state superintendent. Mm. Um, grown in since 18 years, give or take. Yeah. Had no meaning to me as a black person growing yeah. up. Uh, but I did know about the jeans teacher. I did know about the Rosenwald concept. I knew about all that because I went to a Rosenwald school. Mm. <clears throat> Not, notwithstanding that, my focus has always been that all politics are local. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, they are. And if we follow how we got to the even notion that we ought to desegregate, it was local. Yeah. Uh, when Brown versus Board of Ed was filed, 
It didn't start at the national level, it started right. Supreme Court, started with Brown down in Topeka, Kansas, right. soon, right. soon the local Board right. of Education went through several iterations That's before right. it ever got there. But even given that, when it was adjudicated, remember that Brown II, which I, I don't pay much attention to Brown I, it told us what we already knew, <laughs> that the old schools inherently unequal. Well, I knew that when I was 10, 11 years old. However, uh, it gave no remedy. Mm. But when Brown II said we should move forthwith with deliberate speed, listen mm. to these phraseology, to A, dismantle the dual school system, and B, to eliminate the heritage thereof. Mm-hmm. Now, when I was hired, along with Gene Card, my job theoretically was to help to eradicate the dual school system. Mm. We took it on ourselves, however, to realize that the vestiges thereof needn't be toppled because there'd be no other opportunity in which to do that unless you did it simultaneous to. Mm-hmm. Now, not to, not to assume that everybody had negative intent, uh, but we went into every community in North Carolina, every single one of them, and there were certain things that they had in common. One was that everywhere we went, we knew that there would be polarization. Mm. You can see the remnants of it now. One of the reasons we have difficult with discourse is polarization. And that doesn't mean somebody was good and somebody was bad. It means that education has always suffered from two categories of people, unloving critics and uncritical lovers. <laughs> now, we found that everywhere we went. So you go in knowing that with some unloving critics. Mm-hmm. Nothing is right with school. You're going to be some uncritical lovers. You don't need to change anything. Right. If you don't start with that, you're swimming upstream all the time. Right. So we can see that start with, doesn't make you a bad person. That's just where your narrative is something bad about schools, and particularly something bad about black schools. Well, then once you get to the point that you define yourself as being in there, we're not here to to tell you who is right. We're here to try to help you with what is right. Mm -hmm. So I never get dragged into a conversation of who is right. And I know you've had many opportunities, and you'll have more as you move along, that somebody will quote you, Jack said this and such, what do you think? Well, Jack has a right to say whatever he said. Uh, if you want to know what I think about the issue, I'll be glad to talk to you about the issue. I have no opinion about what Jack said, <laughs> what he thought. I'm not interested in further polarizing people. I'm not interested in that at all. I'm not interested in playing that game called let you and him fight. I don't play that game. What I want to do is help you focus on the issue. What is it we're here to deal with? And so as long as we could keep people focused on those issues, what are we here to deal with? There are not that many of them. And, and if you get into what somebody said, felt, or thought, and even to name that person in some categorical sense, then you can wear yourself out and have nothing done. But if you're able to open people's mind to thinking, as a teacher, you have to go into teaching thinking. If people knew better, they do better. Mm. That's what drives you into teaching. If you don't have that belief, why would you be teaching stuff? With? And, and uh, so in the working with the various com- uh, communities, we didn't go anywhere except by invitation, by the way. Mm. Sometimes the invitation came from the federal government, but yeah. still an invitation. We didn't plow into your place saying you got A, B, and C. But what we began with was let us tell us where you think you are right now mm. toward whatever objective you're root, and in what way you feel we can help you with it. And they hadn't thought about that. Mm. They thought you'd come here to tell us we got to do A, B, not here to tell you how to do anything. Mm. Um, acknowledged to begin with that North Carolina as a state procrastinated 
as long as it could mm-hmm. before it did anything meaningful about the dismantling of the dual school system. Mm-hmm. As long as it could. Mm-hmm. Law was passed in, in um, 55, it was 69, before we did any meaningful state orders. Because what the state did was remand the authority back to local school districts, mm-hmm. which meant at that time we had 152 school districts, each of which had to have their own plan. Now, how did locals figure into this? Of those 152 school districts, one-third of them had voluntary compliance, Mm. which means that was totally locally generated. They operated something we call the 445, 441 plan. They defined how they were going to desegregate schools. Now, were we there? Yes, but we weren't there to tell them how to do it. Now that you've decided, here's some help. Another third of them wanted... uh, court orders, hmm. having been created from the local people, having sued. So two-thirds of the people in North Carolina, <laughs> the whole notion was local. and nothing to do with that. Now, the more reticent ones, uh, there was a little more federal influence because in 64, they passed Civil Rights Act, and, and one compartment of that was if you do certain things, you'll get some money to do them with. Mm. So another thing, you want money, is a pretty big incentive. And so it was part of our responsibility to say federal funds attached provided that. That wasn't a threat. That was teaching. Then you know that Title I money you have, it's gone. If, you know, wow. if we can't say you're in compliance with uh, the, the court order and so on and so forth. So we rarely ever had to do that. But, you know, in, in, in a uh, discussion, which we always had, we call them discussion sales. It was never we're here to order anything. It's mm-hmm. never here the state send us to tell you anything. We're here as technical assistance specialists to help you with whatever you define that with which you need help. Now, if we could inject some things that you hadn't thought about that you may need help with, that was legitimate. But it had to be very subtle. So all of it was local, even to the point of the three, the uh, 33%, give or take, I'm generalizing, uh, that were reticent. Uh, it started from the fact that you still had unleavened credits <laughs> on critical levels. Those people who said, what's wrong with this school? I've literally gone into a school which had been all black, water dripping from the ceiling and water bucket wow. catching. They, my grandmother finished this school. Wow. My grandfather finished. What's wrong with this school? Wow. We're not here to talk about what's wrong with this school. We're talking about what is better and what you have the right to. You had to make choice whether that's something you want to work toward but you now have the right to, and so on and so forth. So uh, it, it was all local. It was all local. The only thing, the only thing national we did was we we led the federal government into knowing uh, what the circumstances are you're dealing with, because the federal government was terribly confused about that. Mm-hmm. For example, Robinson County had five, six school districts in it. The federal government thinks county at that see. time. They think in county, and they were very confused. Uh, 52 of the districts were obviously city districts, mm-hmm. only 100 counties in the state. They were very confused about what they were. So we were interveners between helping them to understand that you don't do the same thing in Red Springs that you're in Pembroke yeah. or St. Paul. Uh, so when you're given a covenant saying Robson County has to A, B, or C, or D, we have to get under that and say, what can Red Springs do and what can... Now, we didn't help consolidate, but that theory drove some people to understand it would be a lot simpler if we just had a county system. <laughs> we were sitting in one of those. Now, you had Wake County and you had Raleigh City at that time. So uh, 
it was all local. And, and education was always the driver. Education led to all the other uh, uh, things because the greatest employee in most of the counties in North Carolina at that time, you get out of about eight, ten counties, the greatest employee there was public schools. Now, if you go northeast of North Carolina, you still find that to be true, sure. I suspect. You, yeah. you researched it, but mm-hmm. I suspect the greatest employee, uh, uh, employer there is the school. The, the voting precincts were <laughs> in school buildings. <laughs> so there was no separation and application. But the narrative that says some inherently wrong with schools, why? Because I went to school and I didn't have a good experience there. And I know how they are and I've been waiting to get them. And then you had the other people over there saying, schools saved my life and saved my family's life and you all leave schools alone. Somewhere between there, there has to be a dialogue. Well, I have to see how it looks to you. You have to see how it looks to me and how, how we can make that. And we always had to caveat that Whatever we end up here in the way of discussion has to have three components. Number one, it has to be legal. Because we're not going to sign off on something illegal. <laughs> and this is our role to let you know this is not going to pass muster in the court. We're not lawyers, but we do know what will pass muster in the court. We've been to that in an order a number of times, <laughs> and we can help you with that. Secondly, it must be educationally sound. We are educators trained to do this. And if your proposition is not educationally sound, we will have to uh, help you to understand that's probably not going to pass muster. And then it has to be locally acceptable. That, that doesn't mean everybody has to agree 100%. Everybody shall have had their opportunity to have their input and have it embellished in whatever way they think they must. And that's time-consuming. Our role is trying to keep that low-key so that you don't have to shout at each other, call each other dirty names. <laughs> let's, let's focus on the issue. So, so... In my case, I would always direct discussions to these three questions. What? So what? Now what? Mm-hmm. Now, when you, when you give me the what, that helps us to know this is what we're here to talk about. And all this ancillary stuff I can bring you, man, that's, not, that's, you know, that's not for today's discussion. No. And then so what? What is the impact of this? Mm-hmm. The residuals we're dealing with now, the impact of all that stuff that and has historically let us know about that happened. We're still dealing with the impact of that. And and we don't have to point fingers at somebody. Yes, it's a societal impact that it has had. There's a narrative been created and continued to be fostered. Yes, so the now what grows out of that? What is it we need to do about that? And that's why we're continuing to work every day of our lives, trying to find so now what? What do we do now? That we, now do we know this? I know that my job is to teach. Her job is research. We know that. That ain't all we do. That's right. That's how we are known. We use every opportunity we have to get at the now what? Every opportunity we have. Can I interject? So I'm hoping that the podcasters have heard Dr. Flood talking enough that, that you're making these conclusions for yourself, but it's so important. I just want to say something that um, Dr. Flood has referred to their keeping their role at this more technical level, but I hope everyone can hear that there's so much heart in the way Dr. Flood does this and that he and Gene Cosby, Gene Cosby being white, when they came in, they were modeling for people mm. how to be That's and how great. to be respectful, how to do this kind of problem solving. They had a sense of humor about them. That's good. And 
I mean, this was not a bureaucratic mission. <laughs> I just want that to be abundantly clear. And that when we're talking about how do we make changes, yeah. I mean, it's about those kind of leadership skills, those qualities that make these things happen. That's right. That's right. And North Carolina just owes so much yeah. to Dr. Flood and Mr. Yeah. Cosby for the way they went yeah. about this work. That's right. And, I, you know, and I want to uh, jump into uh, a question that's to you. Um, in American history, African Americans, you touched on this, were legally forbidden to learn and to be educated. I mean, yeah. at one point it was just, it was against the law. A crime. A crime. Thank you. <laughs> um, this, this, <laughs> before there was a sort of um, institution that said yeah. black education or a black superintendent or, or a black superintendent report, yeah. that crime, potential crime, this forced a loose, a loose, uncoordinated underground network of learning, reading, exploring ideas in the home, um, in the neighborhood, in the community. Learning autonomy was owned by the members within the home. Can you help us understand what that may have looked like, autonomy, what autonomy looked like when it was against the law or it wasn't of great quality. Yeah. What did it mean to have autonomy in that space? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, where I would start it is, uh, so those laws were in effect leading up to the Civil War. And um, right after the Civil War, one of the things that I think is so important is that in North Carolina we had what was called a Freedmen's Convention. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the first in the South where free black men and freed black men, there were not women involved, came together. They came together in Raleigh, just a few blocks from where we're sitting right now, and decided on what was important. And one of the things was education. Mm-hmm. And James Harris, who um, was from, from was a free black man from uh, Raleigh, uh, really spearheaded the development of an organization that was grassroots. Mm-hmm. And so this is, wow. you know, where we see it moving from these undercover mm-hmm. kind of operations to we want to fully embrace this and say it, it say, there was a claiming, wow. right? And those people who were involved in that grassroots movement are then delegates to the 1868 Constitutional Convention and they are the leaders in talking about why public education is important. And that's that kind of going back and forth, right? So things happen at the local level. You're figuring it out. You're saying what matters. And now you're going to take that experience and bring it that's up so to the good. state. You're going to enshrine it in the state constitution. And so we do see that sort of we can always look to places where people have been deprived and look at their ingenuity and their creativity to get what they need. And we need to remember that. So that was happening then. It, of course, is happening in the Jim Crow South. And, you know, I also don't want to forget in our conversation um, indigenous people who were deprived in so many different ways. And we can, again, look to what were they doing and what was the culture, what was their relationship to education, what you know, what do they have to offer? And so we can always look to those pieces, and and we should. You know, we're at a place now where the best thing we can do is 
to step back and say, we have a particular kind of a school system. (laughs) 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 It came out of a white supremacist patriarchal system. That's that's a fact. It's just a fact. Mm -hmm. And if we stepped back and said, if we learned from all the people who are just as much a citizen in North Carolina, mm-hmm. have just as much of a stake at this. Mm-hmm. What were they doing on the sides when That's they good. didn't fully belong, when they weren't mm-hmm. fully getting their needs met? Mm-hmm. How can we then make that a part of the system? That's so and so that's that going back and forth. We're going to do things locally. And in part, people do it because they have to, that's right? Mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. But we're not going to just leave that to the side. We're going to say— that's our. That's, that's the juice. That's the source, that's and we're going to look for those things. So this is that notion of movements rolling across the state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not top down, but it's the best sort. Yeah. It's it's where people are at their most authentic self because they're solving the problems of their communities. Mm-hmm. That's so good. And, and, and you know, today in some ways, and you're talking about it right now, public education in some states feel as if legal language and pressures are making it more complicated for certain groups of people to have a thriving learning experience. What thoughts do you have in helping families reimagine local learning autonomy that that really complements public education um, as it is right now? Yeah. And, you know, it's such a—in some ways, it's a painful question, Mm. right? We would like to think that in 2023, all children Mm. would feel— like they have a sense of belonging in their public schools. All children would feel like all of their needs are getting met. So the question raises something that's, I think, painful, um, Mm -hmm. that we haven't quite gotten there. Mm -hmm. And so I I would take it to the, you know, for people in community who who feel these things, and and they do, is to start by really thinking through what is it that's going on? Is it that there are certain almost programmatic uh, things that are are missing? And after all, people with resources have supplemented their children's education forever. They get piano lessons. They they pay the the cost to participate in the soccer, right? So are there, is it sort of like that? And, you know, what we saw in COVID was people getting really creative about yeah. coming together and yeah. bringing, you know, how, how can we <laughs> share good. and the burden and the resources and everything. Um, so it, there can be that. Um, if it's more that sense of belonging, mm-hmm. that public education feels like um, it's almost you go in to get what you have to, but you've got to get mm-hmm. your sense of yourself somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I mean, one, let's step back and say how painful that is, if that's true. In those situations, you know, my hope for the adults in this is that they're taking care of their children, you know, so you are finding those places of belonging for your children, and we're creating that loop. You're letting your school system know that we're having to go and do these things because we don't have that sense of belonging and we're always inviting yeah. the local board, our close by school, to say, you know, we think it would be better mm. if we did it these ways. And we can show you because we've been That's doing good. it. That's good. You know? And, and, and Dr. Flood, your, your, your job 
um, historically, and you've had you had many in education from sitting on boards and whatnot, was to create a change of hope. There was an element in you going into these communities that that something was going to change for the better. There was this there was this sort of saturation of hope in the, in the mm-hmm. language to help move barriers to learning, education, and opportunities was sort of the hope. If we remove these barriers, the hope was that we'll become educated and then it would increase opportunities or just life would be better or there would be an even playing. There was some hope narrative in your words. How might a Dr. Flood today help create change of hope for school districts who are preparing to go back to school with budget shortages, staff shortages, bus driver shortages, increase in mental health concerns, learning loss from COVID. I mean, you can literally, and this is sitting on top of major legislative reports like the Leandro report, you know, that was pre-COVID. How might we enter community again with that hope in a season that seems pretty daunting for many school districts? One necessary thing is to ensure that everybody begins to return to realizing that all the schools belong to all the people, Mm. which means all the problems that go with that are yours. They're not just the school's Mm -hmm. problems. They're my problems. I have no children, have had no children. Uh, But when they say you need to raise taxes for school, I'm I'm the first one to run in my pocket raising. Why? I want everybody to be educated. So what we try to do as often as I have an opportunity to speak with groups, help them understand the the iliomarsonary nature of education. It's not about me. It's about the better of society. It's the same way that my street is, the same way that my fire department is, the same way that my police department they're not about me. I do get the benefit, but that is not, that's not why we have them. Mm-hmm. We have them because they serve the population. Mm-hmm. Education serves the population. So if, if you understand it serves you, then you understand you have a concomitant responsibility mm-hmm. to make it work. And all those problems can be better solved when all of us bite into them. None of them are without solutions. Mm-hmm. They've been solved somewhere, and uh, why, why not here? But if we, if we didn't have the ends of the world who could pull from wherever such solution exists and give us that model, we'd be scratching in the sand one by one trying to come up. Uh, I just read in my journal that I get from AASA an article written by a, a local person. Hmm. He's done the research for us, and he's right here. And, uh, and uh, I'm going to call him this afternoon. <laughs> 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 and, and, and tell him how much I appreciate his everything. But I've known him for years, and I didn't know he was doing research. I mean, wow. you know, I, I knew about his. Yeah. We, we need to go to the trouble of saying, if these problems exist, what is my role? Mm. What little piece of that can I take a bite from? Mm. We don't have school bus drivers. How many people are walking around with a driver's license and don't even have a job? So but they, that's school's problem. Yeah. It isn't school's problem. So it's your problem. It's everybody's problem. So and and I, I don't want to see the kids on my street, yeah. uh, your street, anybody else's street, not being able to attend school because they're they're waiting for the bus to make a second load, and then they're cutting they're cutting the six hour, which is too short, down to four hours. Yeah. When it all becomes all of our problem, and, and there'll be no solution until we're farther along and understanding that all these problems belong to us. The school didn't create them. Uh, I, I used to glibly say to parents who'd pull me off, what in the world is school coming to? I said, what in the world's coming to school? 
<laughs> school is coming to whatever comes in, but we don't create people out here. We wow. take what you send us. Wow. We don't evaluate them. We don't decide that we aren't had the good ones, put them over there. Wow. We keep them all. And with that, we'd like you to come because wow. you, you've had this kid for 15 years. You know something I can't learn in nine months. Help me with what you know that has worked well. And if you can do that and still be smiling when you do it, you'd be astonished at how quickly parents would say, you know, you got a point there. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll just make this one other observation. My, my principalship was in a school one through one through uh, 12, which don't ever take that job. If it's all it can, <laughs> it, it cannot be done because if you're in the high school, they want to watch you. Know, no, no, no. But first this, the first day of school, I knew I must spend the whole day with parents coming to admonish me and uh, one would come in and say, I don't want the teacher to shout at him. He's nervous. And I'm saying, I'm asked, what kind of nerve-wracking experiences had he had? <laughs> he didn't get them here. <laughs> and I'm not going to say that. Yeah, I'm yeah, saying, ma'am, yeah, yeah. we understand that all of our children have to be treated delicately. Yes. I'm not going to separate that and say, we're going to look out for your yes. child. This is the ethos of this school. Mm. Thank you for bringing it to my attention, but we require that here. Uh-huh. I mean, before you're hired here, we determine that that's your feeling about students. Why? Uh-huh. One question I ask as principals, what do you believe about children? And if somewhere in that conversation I don't come out believing that they think all children have a right to education, you don't get to work here. I said, so we've taken care of that, but thank you for reminding me. And you're on the same way that I'm on. I mean, that's just one of many examples that you have an opportunity to bring the school and the education community into the community and vice versa. And, and we, we can do that. We can solve all these problems one by one, not all in one week, if we were to be closer aligned with helping people understand these are your schools. These are your schools. The guy guy that that told me how to get to here when I was looking for you, (laughs) (laughs) he asked me, was I an educator? (laughs) No, why did he ask me? (laughs) There's a black guy walking around with a necktie on. Even in 2023, he got to be either a preacher or an educator. Now, am I offended by that? No, I'm flattered. Because that's what I am every minute of every day. I'm an educator. I don't care what I'm doing. I'm an educator. So when we when we get alignment, and then I told him, well, sir, you knew somebody didn't know because you know I'm on north and I'm supposed to be on south. <laughs> I, I don't care what, maybe I third grade, I don't care. He has to understand that this is about all of us. You are a valuable person. You make a commitment to this community. And the more you know and share with others, that's how we get this thing better. So all of us got to be teachers. All of us don't have to be licensed. All of us, we all got to be teachers. We got to teach whatever it is we know that is good for the country to whomever we have, an access, have access to. And that's how those problems are going to be resolved. Now, I, I appreciate that. And, 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 and I, before I close out with, with a final question that both of you have shared, this is the last question, Ann. Um, we read about gene teachers historically, but how should we see or reimagine gene teachers' role in public schools um, that need support today? Yeah. Well, yeah, one of the um, things that I'm most excited about related to the genes teachers is um, we've actually got an experiment going on, and mm. it's um, the Dudley Flood Center, <laughs> named after my esteemed <laughs> colleague, um, and uh, the Innovation Project, which I had co-founded, um, are, are working on that. We've got mm. eight Jeans Fellows in the wow. state, spread out across the state, wow. that are reimagining and so cool. thinking about how, how, do, how do I, as an educator, 
connect with community and get the community and the public education solving problems mm. together, right? It's, it's, uh, it's so exciting. And I think any school could do it yeah. anywhere. And I would love to see yeah. lots of reinventions of yes. this, you know, and it's what I think was meant to be the professional professionalization of teaching mm -hmm. dropped away yeah. some of these community roles and said yeah. those are less important. Yeah. And mm -hmm. we can change that. Yeah. We can just change it. Yeah. And so this idea of, and um, I know both of you know better than me, the um, focus on recruiting and retaining teachers of mm -hmm. color, important. Yeah. And what if we were also taking this as an opportunity to say, what can we learn from different cultures so about what is the role of a teacher? Let's not just put them yes. into these yes. positions that we've already decided exactly so what they good. are, mm -hmm. you know? So, so there's so many opportunities, and yeah. it, it starts with, I think, that notion of do the next needed thing in that community, mm. that there is this connect, deep connection yeah. between teaching, educating, and community, um, and it can go, in, and, and I also appreciate what Dr. Flood said, it, it, like, we can all be educators, we That's can right. all be teachers, That's and right. so maybe in some places it's not the licensed teacher, yeah. maybe mm -hmm. it's some other kind That's of so educator, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. We could yeah. just do so many different That's so things. That's so good. I, you know, um, as an alternative school teacher and principal, you're, I'm normally inheriting students who are underperforming mm -hmm. either by some metric of behavior or some metric of cognitive performance. And so they're normally coming to my school. And in these environments, it's normally really rough, um, low trust. Mm -hmm. um, everyone's guarded. There's several walls before you actually get to the humanity of the human being. Yeah. The only capital that's successful in that space is relational. Yeah. They don't care if I'm a PhD. <laughs> they don't get too sense if I have a master's. They don't, they don't care if I met the president or if I met the senator. <laughs> if I can't connect to both that human being and their community, yeah. what is my relationship to their mother? What is my relationship to their father? What is my relationship to their grandmother? If I don't have that social capital, yeah. I'm not moving a human being in that school. Mm -hmm. That's right. And there's there's an element to if I was to leave alternative education, I no longer have to engage that social capital. Yeah. And I think that's a false divorce yeah. mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, I only worked in, in environments where relational capital, communal capital, yeah. social capital was the only way you can teach. Yes. Yeah. If you into that room trying to <laughs> pull out the, uh, a, a, a pedagogy that did not connect you to that human being, yeah. <laughs> it was going to be a tough day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, that, that's, that's the foundation of mm, everything. Yes, mm, it is. Mm. So I, I just want, again, this has just uh, been amazing conversation. Uh, again, these two human beings mean the world to me. Um, and so individuals, I want to reach out and connect to you. Uh, we are um, reaching a, a pretty broad audience. 
into how do they find you? What work are you doing? What can they plug into? Um, I know we got the Dudley Flood Center. I know yeah. we have um, work that's branched underneath that. Yeah. But Dr. Flood, how can people reach your legacy, your work, what you're doing? And Dudley Flood Center is the best avenue through which to do it. They know where I am all the time. Most of the time I'm there because they sent me. <laughs> and uh, um, since I don't have, I'm, I'm retired by a title. But I don't have a staff and any of that kind of stuff. But anytime you call the center, they can tell you almost to the minute where I am, what I'm doing, and how to get me to where you want me to be. And it's to my advantage to work through the center because we're trying to build its legacy. Mm. Uh, I've pretty much done what I came to earth to do, but I, I want some remnant of that to carry on. Um, I mean, I've only, I've only done it for 90 years, and I'm, I have a little less than that to do it going forward. So while I've enjoyed the first half of my life, I want that center to be mm. the second half of my life. Mm. And I do virtually nothing outside of the covenant of that, uh, of that center. Mm. I mean, I do a little bit of stuff, but if it's important, uh, do it through the center, please. So if if I can come and help you, have the center have me come and help you mm. in any way. I know that there's a Color of Change conference early October, um, and again, from the the, the, yeah. the Dudley Flood Center, um, and it's a it's a conference that really um, bring together diverse voices to really yeah. try to um, be a strong advocate and, and more prevention strategies for yeah. public education. Yeah. Um, I had a chance to uh, sit with Dr. Flood in his home. And I think his phone ring every point two <laughs> seconds. <laughs> <laughs> So he's 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 pseudo retired, but it's like <laughs> that's, true. that's true. That's true. And and how can how can uh, individuals find um, find you? I know you uh, you write in medium. Um, and I know you have different ways in which your work is sort of you know spreading across. Um, you had the the innovative project tip in North Carolina. Uh, but what what how can people find Anne now? Like, what we <laughs> so I am a little off the grid right now. I'm focusing on my writing, and uh, but I would say they can contact you. Thank <laughs> 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 you, can get me in touch. <laughs> and actually, the Flood Center I just got off of their board, and and I'm do, still doing something with with them. So the Flood Center can tell people how to get to me. So that's actually right now is sort of like people find me through different people. Uh, right. I, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn and I have a link tree and blah, 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 but, you know. Yeah. I just, again, um, just gold mines in education. I'm just wonderful human beings. I just, it's a, just a wonderful opportunity to have them um, let us know and understand why um, education is very much local. Um, why what we do in schools are really a reflection of who you bring to us, as Dr. Flood would say. Again, this is another episode of, of Illogical by Truth, produced by Earfluence, and I will see you in the next episode. Thank you. Thank you.